0: This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Pursuant to the order of reference
1: of Thursday, May the 12th, 2022, the committee is meeting on the study of Bill C-11, an act to amend the Broadcasting Act and to make related and consequential amendments to other acts.
0: Last week, the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage started its hearings on the Online Streaming Act, also known as Bill C-11, with the first of four day-long sessions it has planned for witnesses. I was pleased to appear on the first panel and tried to make the case that, contrary to claims from Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez, the bill includes the regulation of user content and further that it should be narrowed from a model in which all audiovisual content anywhere in the world is subject to potential regulation. Now, in the past, I've often pulled together a podcast featuring my opening remarks and the back and forth with various MPs. But that same panel included Morgan Forche, the co-founder and CEO of Skyship Entertainment, who quite frankly stole the show that day with insights that demand to be heard. Her company may not be a household name, but it's Canada's leading YouTube streaming service, with millions of subscribers worldwide and billions of views. When a successful Canadian cultural exporter isn't widely known and isn't part of the government's policy strategy for streaming rules, there's a problem. Morgan joined me several days after the hearing to talk about her company, the challenges and opportunities for Canadians in online streaming, and her sector's concerns with the government's legislative plans. Mm. Morgan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, it's de- it's a delight to have you on. You know, uh, we're recording this several days after both of us appeared before the Heritage Committee on Bill C. Eleven as part of its its study on that bill. And I think it's fair to say that that you truly stole the show. Uh, oh, you know, God. I was. Thank you. It's tr- it, it's true. <laughs> you know, the media picked up on it, and I think anybody watching it would as well. You know, I I was thinking about your presentation and, and some of the comments that you made in response to questions. And it occurred to me that you represented essentially almost a bookend with CRTC chair Ian Scott. You know, the government's defense of regulating user content in the bill has generally amounted to two things. First, simply a denial that it's in the bill at all. And then, secondly, an attempt to really downplay the importance of user content or digital creators. I thought Scott effectively ended that first defense when he acknowledged that user content is in the bill and i think yeah. you succeeded in really ending the second so you know why don't we start there uh, for okay. those that don't know can you give give us some background on skyship entertainment
1: yeah it's um uh and thank you for for all of that And i do agree with you i think um the conversation was very different I, when we had it on Tuesday after Mr. Scott's uh, comments of the previous week, at least I felt so anyway. And so, yeah, I'll, okay, so I'll fill you in a little bit on Sky Jam Entertainment and it's, we're, we're a few things, which makes describing what we are a little bit complicated, but I think, it, when, especially when you're talking about the digital creator space, we're not that unusual as far as the number of things that we do. So we're, we're probably best known for our YouTube channel, Super Simple Songs, which is a, a music focused channel for preschoolers. Um, and we we have you know God over 170 somewhat songs that are a mix of public domain songs with our own arrangements or their original songs. The the primary focus for our content is it's used by parents, teachers, and caregivers. We often say that like the. The, the first uh, sort of influencer, if you will, that introduces our content to kids is a teacher in a classroom. While we don't develop curriculum, our content gets used to support curriculum all around the world. And it's mostly used for English language development, whether that's kids who are native speaking English, uh, kids who are developing language, or children who are learning a second language and that second language is English. Um, and we also, over the years, have, become widely used for for preschoolers that might have special developmental needs. That was never our our intention with the content, but as our channel has grown and by the nature of our content, that's a community that has grown for us, and so we've we've kept that in mind as we've produced the content uh, moving forward. Um, We're also a production company, Uh, so everything that you see on our YouTube channel, we've produced. Um, And it's a team of about 35 people, 35 employees. So it's a combination of artists, writers, there's some puppeteers in the mix, musicians. Um, We have two shooting stages at our facility in Toronto, one that's exclusively for puppets. So we're always super fun when we give tours (laughs) because everybody enjoys playing with puppets. And um, and then one of them is for our live action series that we do, and we have a sound recording studio as well, post-production facility, and it's all done there at the studio. But back in 2015 we we probably would have been best known as just a youtube channel and since then the activities that our company operates in has grown and it's grown based on the success of youtube so we have our super simple app which launched at the beginning of 2020 and that showcases our content along with ebooks and games which we also produce within that 35 team member uh, group. We have a small, I like to say our game division, it sounds so impressive, it's two people. <laughs> so it's you know amazing what you can do with a small team. We're also music publishers. So we now distribute our content through Warner Chapel, which we've done for about the last two years. But before that we would have self distributed our music through TuneCore, um, which is kind of a lovely little aggregate system that'll kick music out to all the platforms. Um, I myself am a songwriter as well on a few of the songs. Um, we also are now into consumer products. Uh, we just signed a deal with Scholastic to be our exclusive book publisher, and I'm and I'm really excited because we're going to be part of the Scholastic Book Club, which I vividly—it's probably one of the most vivid memories I have from a, from being a kid—was getting the catalog and ordering books. So I'm just personally really excited. Social media, where we we target a different audience on our social. We do original content on Instagram, but it's a lot of craft videos and things that parents and teachers can utilize in the classroom. So it's a slightly different audience. We're also on linear channels um, like Disney in the U.S., Roku, Amazon Prime, and Tubi, and we have a lot of learning resources that we offer for free on our website. But you know, the topic of the day, YouTube. Uh, you know, we've we've grown from Super Simple Songs being our main channel to about thirty different channels now, and we produce more than just the music videos. We have series like The Bumble Nums and Finny the Shark all um, for preschoolers Um, and we're in development on new shows all the time and we're doing a feature film and all of this is like self-financed which is usually what everyone goes like how (laughs) like how are you doing all of this and it is the revenue that we make off of our various initiatives YouTube you know being probably the most dominant one Um, self-finances all of the content that we produce. So I'd like to say that today, we're kind of this example of an entertainment company that stems off of digital distribution. Um, A lot of the operations that we have are really typical in larger entertainment companies. It's just we're doing it ourselves as opposed to having a production studio outside of us or a broadcaster that we connect into. Um, So yeah, that's a long way of saying like, we do a bunch of stuff. that's that's kind of the way it works for us
0: yeah no well that is just i mean it's a remarkable story to see just how how this has grown and spread into so many areas i too have fond memories of bringing home the scholastic catalog from school mm-hmm. uh um, and so it's, it's and that's super cool to see you venturing into all of those different areas you know it's it's incredible but during that first day of hearings the committee again heard references to cat videos to, <laughs> this is what youtube is about you're you're obviously so clearly far, far away from that notion of cat videos is what YouTube being all about. You talked about how you're so active on that platform and that platform has really been the, the financial driver. Can you give me a sense of what the subscriber numbers and views are for, for you on that platform?
1: I, I totally can. Yeah. It's I, I have to say I'm starting to feel really bad for the cat video community. Like I I find there's there I actually spend a lot of COVID watching dog videos because it's very comforting. And so I, I feel terrible whenever the cat video analogy comes up because there's uh you know they do very well and it's some really lovely comforting content that i would be sad if it wasn't there on the platform but yeah it's um so i guess as far as stats and these numbers uh you know can can sound a little bit mind-boggling i know but Across all of our channels, so not like including Super Simple Songs along with all the other channels that we have, we've got about 45 billion lifetime views, which I you know continually have to Google how many zeros are in a billion when I write it down. But we average about 800 million monthly views and close to about 46 million subscribers across all of our channels. So that's obviously that's like a global reach um, of, of how our audience breaks down. But that's really the the core basic. Numbers of things we we have a really wonderful, uh, very engaged community that has definitely allowed us to grow that way for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, I must admit it's it's hard to understand how we could have a Canadian cultural company generating those kinds of numbers and not have it be a household name and something the government would be talking about all the time. But before getting into to that that issue, though, <laughs> how does how do those numbers break down? Domestically versus internationally. There's obviously been a lot of focus about saying we need to, you know, the government saying that there needs to be these discoverability provisions. We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, but the emphasis on the domestic market. How do things break down for you in terms of domestic versus international?
1: It's um, it, it's it's so funny. It's one of the things that I actually take pride in because I, I you know, I am probably a rare uh, uh, example of a digital content creator in the industry because I actually. Came from traditional production. I, you know, my dad owned a studio, and I uh, grew up in the industry and worked for production studios that did service work for the U.S. market. And so I was aware of the Broadcast Act and the, the initial desire that it was so important to protect Canadians especially, you know, seeing Canadian content, ensuring that they weren't seeing U.S. So all of that to say, our largest audience is the U.S., which I always find so ironic when we're talking about these points, Where it's like we're actually this example of a Canadian content creator, 30 percent of our views come from the United States. Um, and so I always take a point of pride in that, in that it's, you know, they, we, we broke the system and we flipped the table a little bit. is always kind of nice to think about. And, and I would say outside of that, so 30% would come from the U.S. About 15% of our views come from other English language countries. So, you know, the U.K., um, Canada and and the like. And then the rest of our views are coming from the rest of the world. Um, and in most cases, that's going to be countries that are not speaking English first, but are again, watching our content for, you know, learning the English language. About like all out of all of those numbers, 3% of our views come from Canada. And that's not because we're not Necessarily popular in Canada. If you if you look at platforms like Social Blade, which is a is a is a website that we actually look at often just to see the numbers of our I don't want to say competition, but you know the other folks out there that might share our audience. Um, we are usually ranked as the number one channel, most viewed channel in Canada. Um, so that three percent total works out to you know hundreds of thousands of views in Canada. But it it's demonstrative of just You know, when you look at the global population, Canada is like less than half a percent of the global population. So you you see that when you look at numbers, and I think that that demonstrable percentages is probably common for a lot of content creators, even within Canada. The the export is really the larger um, component of that distribution model, if that makes sense.
0: It does. I mean, those numbers are also, I think, remarkable. I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about a company that's become a major cultural exporter clearly those numbers you know confirmed that with a massive global audience you employing dozens of canadian creators i mean it's 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 the sort of story that you would have thought the government would start by saying okay how do we create more skyship entertainment and let's let's ensure that our policy tries to to push that forward and yet here you were this week appearing before committee with a warning about what the government has in mind particularly with bill c11 so what brought you before committee
1: it's um god it feels like such a long it feels like such a long story um a couple of years ago we had started to hear murmurs that there was possibly going to be a bill of some kind or something that was going to come through that was going to be affecting digital content creators and this was probably, I wish I knew the actual year, but when Melanie Jolie did the tour across Canada to speak to content creators, to get an understanding of the industry. And after that you know, wild, wildly publicized tour that she did, um, we learned that she only really spoke to a handful of digital content creators. It, I, I would like to say five, but I have a feeling it was more like two. And who she spoke to were the, the usual players within the existing broadcast industry. So it would have been ACTRA, SOCAN. Rogers, Bell, you know, the big players who do, you know, work on the platforms, but very much as traditional broadcasts. Like it's really just an extension of what they would do in their linear broadcast is how they occupy on the platform space. So uh, we started to get a little bit concerned, you know, as you start to hear these murmurs that we weren't feeling like digital content creators were being heard and not to toot our own horns, but we kind of felt like, I feel like somebody would be reaching out to us like at least our company just you know it's not like we're hard to find you can Google us and we're you know we'll show up on the list. But we just weren't hearing from anybody and we're feeling a little stuck because we don't operate in politics at all as to how to actually get involved in the conversation, so when C10 came about. Um, that's when I was like, I, we just couldn't sit by and let the conversation happen when we hadn't participated and we could tell by the way the bill was presented, no digital content creator that was actually earning a living in the space, you know, professionally had been consulted, it felt really offside and oddly, uh, antiquated a misunderstanding of how the platforms ran. Um, So I was, you know, through my legal counsel, I was like, how do I, how does one get government to hear you? And we were trying to figure out how to, I don't know, write a letter, get something out there. And then through a mutual acquaintance, I got connected to Scott uh, Benzi, who's who's now, you know, Digital First Canada, but part of BufferFest. I believe that day he said, well, you've got to write a letter. And I was, one of the most intimidating things I've ever done was write that letter. So we wrote the letter, I sent it to him like that day, I believe I was outside, I think I was in Aurelia when he messaged me like an hour later and said, oh my God, they're reading it on the floor because he'd managed to get it before the conservatives. And then suddenly I was in this, you know, there was no stepping back from it. Shortly after that, obviously we know what happened, C-10 died. But when Bill C-11 came about, we were waiting, like my, when I say we, my partner and I, um, Brett and I were waiting for this, this bill to come through and we realized, okay, this is getting out of hand, that it's pretty evident that while this bill is touted as an internet bill, digital content creators have been completely ignored in the conversation, not forgotten, not misquoted, not that they spoke to the to the wrong digital content creators, just like full on ignored. And yet, the impacts of those bill of this bill and those legislations were going to affect digital content creators directly. Um, and so, I've been working with Scott um, to just try to stay in the conversation and and literally talk to anybody who will listen. Um, and I never thought in a million years that I would. I never thought in a million years that this week would have happened, that I would have been speaking as a witness before a committee. Never thought that it would come to this point, but the discussions became so uh, divisive and it's just felt so hostile of an environment. And to your, your point, I just wish there was more celebration of what's happening with content creators in Canada. Like there's some phenomenal, impact happening on the platform, some really amazing work. And this is all content that would never land on on linear broadcast because it's it's not the way that broadcasters can broadcast their day. You know, it's like, it's a really special sector of a broadcast industry that's just being, I'm running out of words to say ignored, but like just, just straight up ignored. Uh, I was actually really Thrilled that I was able to be a part of that conversation on Tuesday. And um, as intimidating as it was, uh, but I was really thrilled that I could at least have had that time to at least have had my voice heard in some way towards this discussion for sure. But it's been, it's just been mind-boggling every step of the way.
0: Yeah, no, that's quite a story. You know, one of the things that that you said to committee was that in the Venn diagram of the entertainment industry, (laughs) the needs of legacy broadcasters and the enterprise of digital content creators are not interconnected. There's no demonstrable reason that UGC content needs to be included in the bill. Can you, can you expand a bit on that? And it said, you know, you you said you've been ignored. What is it, what's not in the bill that that should be, or what, what is in the bill that uh, is giving you, you you know, is a significant source of concern?
1: I mean, I think what's, what's become so complicated in this whole mix of the conversation is that the, you know, legacy broadcasters, linear broadcasters have very legitimate pain points that they need to get solved. I mean, it's a 30 plus year old bill, right? That I feel needs an overhaul now that we're in today's industry, but rather than that, okay, we're going to Band-Aid solution this thing. So it's already, this is not a great scenario. But in a lot of cases the people the parties that you know the stakeholders that want this bill to push through aren't even paying attention to the digital side of the discussion like it's it's not even in their in their purview and it's i think it's mainly because when you see how legacy broadcasters utilize platforms it's very much like ott it's just it's an additional method of broadcast they're taking the real estate just so they're there but they're not focusing on Discoverability—they're not discover. They're not focusing on you know international distribution. In a lot of cases, they don't have the rights to distribute outside of Canada. So those broadcaster activities on platforms like YouTube are, are very much probably geo-blocked. You know, it, they're still there. It's just an extension of their broadcast day. Whereas digital content creators are actually operating on the platform. It isn't even the same methodology in distribution broadcast is reaches a broader audience because it's geographically niched whereas digital content creators produce niche content that's geographically broad like we have the entire world and so in order to reach the people we want to reach we need to be very focused on the content that we produce that's why you don't get you know niche content on broadcasters is because it just the dynamic doesn't work or else broadcasters would have they would have done it by now. So the pain points that exist for, for the existing broadcast industry, don't they don't connect. They, they run parallel, really, the two sides of the industry where digital content creators are doing their thing. I mean, there aren't even any pain points that are being presented in this bill as far as digital content. There's certainly no solutions being presented to whatever mysterious, speaking of mysterious things, mysterious problems might be presented that this bill is trying to fix. The two don't step on each other's toes. One isn't taking from the other. They just run parallel to each other. It's like you have a broadcast coin and they're on two sides of the coin but they don't actually necessarily need to connect. Um, and I think, you know, we're looking at a broadcast industry, especially in Canada. It's complicated. There's a lot of moving parts to that industry. But discoverability is not really a key component of it. And so to have this bill so heavy handedly you know, scoop up all UGC together in one bucket, you know, I love my mom and what my mom posts on social, but it's not what we post on social. It's very different. Um, To lump all digital content into one bucket, very sort of, let's say dismissively, talk about, you know, manipulation of algorithms, possible advertising, you know, construction and control, which is pre-existing from the, you know, the current bill. It has a very different play out on digital media. None of that has anything to do with the pain points that broadcasters have. Even the fact that digital has lumped in what I keep referring to as like the new broadcaster, which would be Netflix, Disney+, Plus, Amazon. These are companies that you pitch your content to. They green light, they give you the funding. There's probably going to be some conversation as to who owns the IP. Somebody takes over the distribution, and it's probably not who did the pitching. None of those activities exist with YouTube. It's just a completely different infrastructure and sensibility that's trying to get jammed into this broadcast centric industry that literally don't correlate. So yeah, my in my mind I see it as this Venn diagram, the two circles being broadcaster and digital distribution and just the two don't interconnect. They coexist and they they run side by side, but they don't step on each other's toes. One isn't taking away from the other if anything. My god, could you imagine if handled right, what a flourishing industry it could be on both sides if if people just understood the platform methodology of distribution and saw the potential. And I think I've been, you know, I've been saying that for like, since I got into this whole thing in 2015, but it's kind of unfortunate that this has just all been dumped into one lump sum that really is pulling from a pre-existing broadcast or distribution method that has nothing to do with what digital distribution is like today.
0: Yeah, no, there's certainly I think a lot of that. The discussion you're quite right is 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 backward looking in the sense of how some of the legacy players have operated, and then trying to put the square peg in the round hole almost when it comes to the digital side. Yeah, you you mentioned discoverability, and it's obviously been a, you know a, one of the lightning rod issues in this bill. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how discoverability works for you now, and and address it a little bit why are you not concerned about the YouTube algorithm in the way that others seem to be. You know, YouTube showed up, for example, at the art summit that the heritage minister Pablo Rodriguez put on and was literally heckled by the, by this conventional community. I mean, it was quite astonishing to see sort of no sense of decorum at all, just quite literally heckled. So, you know, the, the, the there are certainly many that are, are deeply angry, suspicious and perhaps very fearful of YouTube. Why aren't, why aren't you in that camp?
1: It's it's this whole. <sighs> Sorry, I have an answer. I just always get so stumped by this. I've learned I've learned over the last like months, the last years. Whenever I'm presented with a question that just uh, defies my sense of logic, I kind of shut down and don't know how to answer it back. That's that's kind of happened to me a couple of times because there's been a few moments where it's just been like, I kind of scratch my head as to why we're kind of vilifying these aspects of an industry unnecessarily, especially when the rest of the world is working with these concepts as commonplace industry, you know, and using this as like informed information. So, and I'm, you know, here I am getting ahead of myself, but like, so I think part of the problem with, with the conversations that we're having is... First of all, the algorithm is nothing to be afraid of. It's literally part of the distribution method for digital content creators um, when you're dealing with platforms. So in broadcast, you would have advertising that would promote the shows that you're gonna be watching. And then there's gonna be word of mouth, right? Hey, did you watch this show? You should watch it. You know, this is gonna be a great show. You should keep an eye out for it. On the digital side, you know advertising's a little tricky you You run the risk of reaching the wrong audience so you don 't want to necessarily advertise your content that way it 's not like we 're going to put up banners around the world for people to watch our content. Our method of of one of the methods of distribution for us is this algorithm, which has been set up on all the platforms i 'll speak strictly about youtube because it's it 's where we live for the most part. Um, we don't, you know, distribute our content. We're on TikTok, but we're we're trying to figure out TikTok. It's not our space. Preschoolers, preschoolers aren't on TikTok yet, so we're predominantly on on YouTube. But the algorithm is is really intended to push content to a community that is demonstrating a desire to watch this type of content. So as an example, if you're a mom at home that is your child's about to go into preschool maybe in the next year and you want to get them kind of prepared in some way, you might start watching super simple songs and the algorithm will go, oh, if you like this content, there's other people similar to you that have liked this other content. You might be interested in this too. And the success of these platforms is really to encourage people to stay on them and to continue watching content that they want to see. Um, you know, my YouTube uh, it, it often refers me to like true podcom or true crime podcasts or uh, you know some other things that I enjoy watching personally, and it's very much curated to me. Obviously, as you grow as a content creator on the platform and your subscriber base grows, you have more people that you reach out to, but there's nothing really insidious about the algorithm. It's it's actually intended to encourage discoverability and to encourage growth. The only way that these platforms survive and exist is that they have success stories. Not five success stories, but like thousands of success stories. Like it really does benefit these platforms that people want to go to them to first create for the platforms, to create their content and create stuff that they want a community to watch. But then it also requires the community being there to watch it. Like putting something out there to no one isn't fun for anybody and there's nowhere to go with that. So, if you didn't have this reciprocal relationship, it falls apart. And that's really what it is. It is It is. You know, we're really fortunate and I think it's one of the things that my crew really likes is we put up a video and it's us and it's our community. There's no broadcaster in between. Like most of my team, including myself, worked on production service projects for other studios or for other broadcasters. And once you deliver the episode and it goes to the broadcaster, you don't really know how it did. You you know, maybe your second season gets greenlit, so things must be going right. But you don't necessarily get to see the dialogue like we do on our side, because it really is like us and them. Um, And we learn a lot from our community. We learn a lot from the algorithm, like as an example. And I know this came up when we spoke Tuesday, that like only certain content gets promoted, only the big channels get promoted. I wish that was the case. I wish that every song we released, that every episode we released was a surefire hit and just right out of the gate was doing gangbusters for us. And it's not that case. And it's a good thing. Like we learn when a song doesn't necessarily resonate. In some cases, it can take three years for a song of ours to actually resonate. Like it's, it's not fast. It's not overnight. It's not a handout of a situation. It is, it is a hustle. It's a hustle, not a handout, right? is like the best way I can describe it. But the algorithm and the data that we have in the back end, this is where I get so stumped by the rhetoric that's happening right now, is literally information used in other industries that is important information taken as fact for consumer products, for advertisers that want to do brand deals with, with content creators. Like there's no one else kind of doing this, it can't be trusted the algorithm is manipulated it's all lies like there's it's such a weird it's such a weird rhetoric that's going through that makes the argument so impossible to discuss because it gets so dismissed as well of course youtube's just promoting certain things it's like it, it, it's not the case we don't work for the platforms the platforms work for us and if That relationship doesn't exist. If there are not multiple content creators actually having success stories, then YouTube doesn't exist. Like, it needs us to actually be successful, and it needs a community to be successful. It's it's a conversation. It's not passive. It's participatory. And I think that's a very big difference than what you experience with broadcast uh, distribution and linear broadcast. which, which is potentially more passive viewing than what we experience on the platforms. That was a long-winded answer to a short question, but I hope that made some sense.
0: No, but it was a it was a great answer that uh, that really highlights from someone who is on the inside dealing with the, dealing with this day to day and their understanding of what this means and the actual real world experience of what it means. I guess the the question that I that I need to ask, you know, it's, it's a bit more speculative. But if the CRTC sort of injects itself into that relationship, you talked about how it's so direct. You see immediately the reaction. You get data that then that is then relied upon as reliable by so many players. What happens in your view of suddenly the CRTC interjects itself by way of regulation, start saying that they want they're, they've been mandated by the government to begin to play a role, not necessarily in exactly the way the algorithm works, but in terms of some of the outputs that come from that algorithm, because they want to prioritize some content over others or certain kinds of content over other kinds of content.
1: It's, you know, what would make this so much easier is if you knew what the problem was that they were trying to handle. Like that's, that's part of the issue is like there's, this is so amoebic and it's so broad sweeping. It's, it's really hard to kind of answer this question effectively because there's a lot of different scenarios that could happen. One thing's for sure, what's being presented into the bill right now um, is not going to help anybody on digital distribution sites like YouTube. Um, it would, it will absolutely have the exact opposite effect. And you, it goes back to discoverability, um, which is the the key component, right? Like what the algorithm helps to to propel is this discoverability and the fact that digital distribution on these platforms is an export industry as opposed to a, a regionalized industry. So, like going back to that point, broadcast is reaches a broad audience because it is nichely geographic, digital distribution is a niche audience that's globally uh, distributed. You already see evidence that restricting niche content doesn't work. One, you could actually test it by placing ads against your content, as an example, that's maybe directed to the wrong audience. What happens is that person sees the ad, clicks on the video and goes, this is not of interest to me and steps away. And what happens is, back to the algorithm, back to the system, it goes, oh, wow, that person didn't like that content. If enough people don't like this content, well, we're going to get a sense that this isn't great content Um, and nobody wants to watch it. So, while there's other content that seems to be doing well, we're going to make sure that that content goes out, but we don't have anybody to send this content to because everybody keeps clicking off it. So, we don't know where to send this thing it doesn't just impact it in Canada, if it gets artificially manipulated in Canada. That algorithm is looking at similar viewership behavior around the world. So if it goes, wow, there's like a bunch of Canadians that don't like this stuff. These Canadians tend to like similar content. I bet the other people in the world aren't going to like it either. And so it all gets demoted within the system. It's it's like throwing up a banner and nobody sees it. And that's, that's the the bigger issue here is there is no solve for whatever potential problem is actually wrapping this bill. Artificially manipulating algorithm doesn't educate future content creators. It doesn't educate the system in Canada. It doesn't innovate. It doesn't support. It doesn't do anything to bolster and encourage growth and development. All it does is offer up this weird, like, I don't know, mandatory handout that doesn't contribute to any long term development. And quite honestly, there's nothing in this bill that actually does any of that conversation for digital content creators. Again, because we're not in the bill, like, we're just ignored out of it. I think part of this, if I had to get philosophical, and again, I am I'm not a politician, I'm just a simple girl making content in Canada, but right now, if, if the government, if Heritage only spoke to the big broadcasters who, who have some presence online, who are, you know, CBC is an example, right? Like they green light shows that they distribute on YouTube and on CBC Gem. But the way that those broadcasters operate on the platforms is just an extension of their broadcast day. So they're not necessarily worried about uh, discoverability, about global reach because, like I mentioned earlier, most cases they're probably not going to be able to do that because of licensing agreements. But they have greenlit a project that somebody has produced and they're controlling the distribution as part of what they would do of their normal operations. Well, of course, if that's the only input you've had towards this bill, if you haven't spoken to actual people who are operating on the platform, then you're going to use the same methodologies that, that exist currently in the broadcast system. To this, you're going to go. Well, if if our broadcasters are up there, then this is this must be how this operates. But it's literally the exact opposite. Like it's the the impact of the bill. Uh, there's such a bigger picture here that's getting missed. It's like we're every dollar of revenue. Let me put it to you this way: every dollar of revenue that we earn is collected globally by wherever the views have come from around the world. The Canadian government taxes that entire revenue that we collect globally. It's not that they only collect taxes on the Canadian views and the Canadian CPM and the Canadian revenue. It's a full global revenue pool that they get to tax on. So, the bill basically is like sacrificing dollars for the sake of pennies. And I just can't wrap my head around the motivation other than a misunderstanding that this is not an industry that runs like the broadcast industry and it's just stumped everybody. Um, And that's why we can't get past this. That's why the arguments of, well, how are we going to be found on a global distribution platform? It's like, yes, yes, good question. (laughs) There's a lot of, of education and information out there to help you learn how to operate on that platform. But the other side of this is if 10 years ago, you as as a production company or a broadcaster or a musician or any artist in Canada decided you didn't want to invest on the digital platform side, you were going to stick with broadcasters and do the traditional, you know, methodology, then yeah, I get that you're at the threshold today going, oh, crap. Maybe I should have learned more or this is really daunting. you know, I, I got into this in 2015 when I went to my first VidCon, which was, it's a huge event that takes place every year in Anaheim for digital content creators, I sat with my phone in my lap and I kept having to Google the words being said by everybody. Like I was overwhelmed. That and the fact that nobody seemed to speak in actual words. It was all like CPMs and MCNs and it was just like, it was all in code. And I just spent the whole time Googling like the full week. But today, here I am and I'm speaking to you about this stuff. It is a learnable enterprise. Nobody enters into any business without any knowledge of how it works. And so, this this dependency on government regulation and having to be found, it just doesn't apply to the sector. But there are so many tools. It's all work, absolutely. There's, There's no free ride. But everyone starts with the first video. Everyone starts with the first music stream. Even we, to this day, on Super Simple Songs, every video, in theory, is putting a video up for the first time. I mean, our audiences, it's preschoolers, they outgrow us. We are constantly reaching a new audience every day. Um, it is achievable. And there are people ahead of us who have done it. Uh, it's just. Sorry, I'm probably sounding more frustrated than I'm than I intended to, but it's just so mind-boggling the the missed opportunities that are happening here with some of these conversations.
0: Okay, well, I mean, it's, uh, it's a it's a fabulous answer touching on a really wide range of things. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm you know? so
1: sorry. How how does Morgan wander? It's just the way <laughs>
0: No, no, it's pretty great. You know, once that, that was a mic drop moment. So once you, once you, once you've picked up the mic again, let me ask you two, <laughs> two, two, two last questions. One, and not to get political, but speaking of people taking the time to learn. You know, one of the things that also struck me at that committee, um, it was that and it applies really, I think, to both of us, but it's particularly since you were a, a new voice with presenting a new perspective that it's quite clear many of these members of parliament hadn't heard. But if I, if I look back at the transcript, you didn't get a single question from a liberal MP, a block MP or an NDP MP over a two hour session. You know, what kind of message do you think that sends when there are real digital creators there talking about this incredible success and government MPs seem almost entirely uninterested in those issues.
1: It's um it's so funny that you mentioned that. I think I was so uh nervous <laughs> in speaking on Tuesday and also this just goes to show how involved I am in politics. I didn't really know who was asking me what question. So anytime anyone asked me anything, I just political parties aside, I wasn't even aware. It was it was just mostly Oh god, don't don't say something stupid. It was really the only thing running through my head. But I think, you know, someone had said to me at one point entering into this, you know, if 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 you know, quote unquote opposition parties don't ask you any questions, it's because they know that I'll I won't work in their favor if I give them an answer back. Not that I would be combative, but just my answer probably wouldn't support their arguments. So they probably weren't going to ask me any questions. And my response was like I I hope that's not the case because I I genuinely like keeping in mind, I grew up in this industry. Like, I literally don't know any other industry. My dad had a studio, I grew up in that. I've been working for, you know, service studios and the traditional side of the industry for like, oh my God, it's been like it's getting close to 30 years that I've worked in the Canadian entertainment industry. I genuinely care about these discussions and would would very much love to have these conversations where we can, like, have something that, that everyone's growing from, we're learning, it's having impact, and we're able to move and invest in this sector, which is, is just, I think, is so important. And it's frustrating that this whole thing has become so politicized. And that just happened right out of the gate. I mean, the minute content creators started saying, hey, wait a minute, are you talking about us? (laughs) Like, do we need to talk about this? Suddenly then the conversation became cat video content creators. You know, At one point, I think there was this analogy that we make videos in our parents' basements. It's like, my mom doesn't even have a basement, so that's totally not what happens with us. Um, And then it became very divisive. Um, Like we shouldn't have a voice in these conversations that this didn't affect us, don't worry you're not included, only professionals are included. Like that was getting said a lot a couple of months ago, which was just like their, their case in point was, you, was such an opportunity to celebrate what was happening in that sector of the industry, who was having such a global impact, having such a global voice. And it was just so dismissed, you know? And it's, and it's just frustrating that that mantle hasn't been picked up. I found on Tuesday, even though those other parties weren't speaking or weren't asking me any questions. And honestly, even now, I would encourage them, you have some questions? I would love to give you answers or find the people who can give you answers. but I'm the door is open to that conversation. but I, I felt on Tuesday that some of that rhetoric, that divisive rhetoric, had settled down a little bit. and I and I think, my theory based on nothing but feelings is that Ian Scott's comments that UGC was indeed in the bill, switch that a little bit more. It's like now, okay, we're scoped. There is the potential that we are scoped, right? In that bill. So now we, we honestly deserve to have a voice at the table. It's like the argument of who's more Canadian than others. I don't even know how that can possibly be a conversation today, it's just, the whole thing has just become way too politicized. But it felt Tuesday like things had softened. I didn't take it necessarily as me being ignored. I took it more as one, when you remove the rhetoric, and you can't use those talking points anymore, it's really hard to kind of go, what questions do you ask when you don't know what to ask when you don't know enough about the platforms that are in discussion to ask those questions. And there were some weird things that came up, right? Like particularly from the NDP, talking about how algorithms are being pushed out, you know, by big corporations. And it, it, ironically, it's we're, we're all kind of having the same argument, which is the Broadcast Act can't keep going the way that it has been. Um, and so when you have this argument of, well, just trust us, The CRTC has never done anything like this in the past. It's like, well, everyone is saying we can't keep operating the same way that we have. So why should we keep pulling back on past examples of how we've always operated? Like now is the time to make a difference. I have a very romantic view of politics because this is my first foray into it, but it's like we could make change here. This could be huge. Uh, This is such a missed opportunity. And I just, I hope that the CRTC does a meaningful you know, audit and review and gets a really good sense of things and that everyone can get educated on this industry that they apparently didn't know existed. Like I'm really excited for them. There's so much content for them to watch on YouTube that they weren't even aware was out there. Um, you know, I'm God, could you imagine you didn't know YouTube was a thing until recently and now you're learning about it. I'm thrilled for them. This is going to be huge.
0: I'm trying to picture Ian Scott watching <laughs> uh, some of your songs or maybe it's cat videos. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not really sure. But you know, I think that's a that's a that's a great way to end it on a more optimistic note um and you know what? It, it's clear that that you have and along with scott benzi uh, and and many others from the from your community that have sort of pushed their way to the table to say hey this is a really important voice and you need to be listening so so thank you for doing that and thank you for joining me on the podcast
1: thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it thank you this is awesome
0: That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron Leboy.